0: Good morning. This morning we get to read from Psalm 98, starting in verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Well, may may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in God's sight today. Fear not, the angel told the shepherds. Fear not, for... Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. You know, today we're going to reflect on another classic Christmas carol, meditate on it. Uh, somebody asked me during the break, are we going to do uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer today? So I said, eh, probably not. If we had an evening service, I think Rudolph would, would work for an evening service, but... Dominic, I, I actually replied that. They said, how about Rudolph? I said, how about Dominic the donkey? And they rolled their eyes, so. So pray for an evening service where we can meditate on Rudolph and, you know, all the festive animals. Uh, seriously, though, uh, we're going to focus on Joy to the World today, which, which was actually penned by Isaac Watts in 1719. Isaac Watts was, a, was an, English, an, an, an Englishman, and from when he was very young... He, he loved composing hymns. He, he loved writing the, the lyrics to hymns. And what he would do is he would take an Old Testament passage, paraphrase it in New Testament language. And so he would take a lot of the Psalms. A lot of Isaac Watts' hymns are paraphrased Psalms in, in the language and the themes of, of, the new, of New Testament theology. And so Joy to the World is a paraphrase of Psalm 98 which says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And that was his inspiration for joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king. My question to you today is, what is joy? Could you define joy? Think about it, I'm not going to ask for hands, but could you define the word joy, what it is? I looked, it in, uh, looked up the definition of a couple, couple of uh, pretty well-known dictionaries. So Oxford's, Oxford Dictionary's definition of joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Merriam-Webster's definition is a bit more nuanced. The emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Maybe you can summarize both of those definitions by saying, joy is the emotion you feel when things go well or are about to go well. Now, here's the thing. According to those definitions of joy, wouldn't you say that joy can be lost as easily as it is gained? If joy is about circumstantial status, which those definitions declare then joy could be just as easily and quickly lost as it is gained. Like in a Christmas story, the movie, where Ralphie, you know what happens to Ralphie, right? Ralphie's joy turns into immediate sorrow on Christmas morning when he opened up his Red Ryder BB gun and tried it out. Now, he thought, quote, all was right with the world until he nearly shot his eye out that morning. And the narrator in that moment, right, when, when the Christmas turkey is being devoured and stolen by the neighbor's bumpus hounds, and everything like, just like that falls apart for the entire family, uh, the narrator says, life is like that. Sometimes at the height of our reveries, when our joy is at its zenith, when all is most right with the world, the most unthinkable disasters descend upon us. And that was just a BB gun and a turkey. You know that it's, like, real life is not, real life is, disaster descends upon us. All seems right, right? And then some, it's like the rug gets pulled out from under you, and you're, you're no longer stable. It can happen like that. What happens when the object of your joy is lost or stolen or dies? What what happens when the condition of your joy dissipates? When the moods change, when when the seasons change, when the dynamics of your job or your marriage or your relationship with certain family members or just what's happening in the the community or in our nation or in the world, what happens when when that that condition dissipates? You know, I I wonder if our culture's definition of joy would be better labeled as happiness. Happiness, I think, is, you know, feeling fortunate because of your good situation. Happiness is feeling hashtag blessed because things have gone well for you, and you can post a picture of how it's going well for you. Usually you don't post the things that bring you despair and desolation and discouragement and frustration. Usually you post what you're happy about and what you can show off. And actually think that those Oxford and and Webster definitions of joy are really what we think of as happiness, feeling good because things are going well. You know, the God of the Bible is more interested in joy, but let me redefine it. In the terms of Christianity God is more interested in a joy that you cannot lose When your circumstances change for the worse So maybe a helpful definition of joy from a Christian perspective Is feeling blessed and knowing that you are blessed Regardless of your circumstances Happiness is feeling good when things are going good Joy is feeling blessed and knowing you are blessed Regardless of how things are going Present trials are unavoidable, right? But they should not dictate the believer's outlook. Christianity gives us an opportunity to think differently so that our bad circumstances do not demand that we have a certain outlook on life in the world. We have a freedom to have joy regardless of our situation. And so the New Testament talked about this in many places. For instance, the Apostle Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, even though you do not see Jesus, now the context is he's talking about their trials, their adversities because they follow Jesus. And he said, even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And then the Apostle Paul, while he was in prison, wrote a letter. And in that letter, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. He said that as a prisoner. He wrote that while he was under lock and key. We talked about that last month. Rejoice in the Lord always, said the prisoner. Now, that kind of a joy, Peter, Paul, the uh, New Testament believers, and believers all over the world throughout the centuries, and believers right now throughout the earth... That joy was always available to them, is always available to them, even when they have no good fortune. Whenever they remembered that God's grace was sufficient for them, they overflowed with joy. Whenever they considered that Jesus was in fact returning, as Chrissy said to the kids today, they adjusted their outlook. And so Paul would go on to say in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and here was why. The Lord is at hand. Or in another translation, the Lord is near. He's returning. And to him, a thousand years is like a day, and vice versa. So rejoice in the Lord because he's coming back. A present joy that is rooted in a future circumstance. What makes joy impossible for us is misdirected hope, hope looking at the wrong thing or the wrong person, hope attributed to the wrong thing. Last week, we talked about false expectations, and this is a similar thing. Call it what you want, false expectations or misdirected hope. Simply put, I think since the age of the Enlightenment, our civilization has put our hope in the human spirit. I think in general our society hopes in the human spirit, whether through science or technology, whether through gathering and obtaining and holding and marketing information, or whether through concepts like liberty and freedom, our society puts its hope in the human spirit. And and listen, these, these are not the silly gods of the ancients. People look down on the ancients for talking about and, you know, coming up with these myths about Zeus and Artemis and Baal and, and Marduk, you know, we're too sophisticated for that sort of thing, right? Our, our society has a God that is way more palatable than Marduk or Baal or Zeus. And I think it's the human spirit. From our childhood, you know what I'm talking about, especially if you're my age or younger. From our childhood, we've heard the mantra. We've heard it on, uh, we've heard it in, um, in school, We've heard it when we we would watch television programs, especially cartoons. Now we hear it in the movies, and, and we hear it in politics. And this is the mantra, you can do anything you set your mind to if you believe in yourself. And we've heard that throughout our lives since we were very small, and we've heard that again and again and again. That is putting our hope in the human spirit. But we really haven't achieved peace personally, or as a society or as a human race we have not achieved reconciliation there is not universal equity we are not all healthy the planet is not healthy and this is all for believing in ourselves and telling ourselves and telling our children that they can do whatever they set their mind to and look, there's anxiety there's discouragement there's anger there's hatred there's division plenty of all of that but very little joy for all the emphasis placed on the human spirit and doing anything we can set our minds to, there is very little joy in our society. Instead of saying you can do anything you put your mind to, the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We looked at that last month as well. We had said last month in our giving and giver series, this was the source of Paul's contentment And his joy. That's what I want to add to Paul's contentment. He had joy. Contentment and joy. Because he knew that no matter what his circumstance was, plenty or want, right? Sorrow or happiness, the Lord was with him. And he could do anything that the Lord had called him and equipped him to do. Not anything that he set his mind to. Anything that the Lord had equipped him to do. See, your lack of joy comes from hoping in the wrong things, hoping in the wrong people, having misdirected confidence. One Christmas Eve, Ebenezer Scrooge was visited by three spirits, Charles Dickens said a couple of hundred years ago. And Ebenezer Scrooge is so ubiquitous in our society that you you can just picture the Ebenezer that most suits you. Um, but, But Ebenezer was visited by... Ghosts of Christmas Past, Ghosts of Christmas Present, Ghosts of Christmas Future. Well, I've been listening to the book again recently, and something hit me that I had never really paid attention to before. It's a contrast between the way the ghosts introduce themselves to Ebenezer. And I just want to focus on the contrast between the first ghost and the second ghost in how Ebenezer experiences these ghosts, how they appear to him. So the ghost of Christmas past, the clock strikes one, and he just suddenly appears. He comes out of nowhere. The ghost of Christmas past, when the, when the clock strikes one, throws open Ebenezer's uh, bed curtains, and is, he's right there. The, the, the clock tolls, the curtains open, and he takes Ebenezer into memories from his past that he did not want to face. What's interesting, though, is the second ghost doesn't appear that way to Ebenezer. The ghost of Christmas present appears like this. The clock strikes one, and he doesn't appear. Nothing. And Dickens tells us that Ebenezer waits, and the more he waits, as the minutes tick by, he's getting more and more anxious. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. A quarter of an hour goes by, and there's no ghost. He has to get out of bed and head towards the door where there's this radiant light emanating from beneath the door. And he opens the door, and he enters into another room in the house, and in that room is this radiant light and an enormous feast beyond his imagination. Drink, food, anything you could want. And enthroned on this great feast, Dickens says, is this jolly giant. And and he says to Ebenezer, come in and know me better, man. Come in and know me better, man. You, just, you can just see it. It's like, come on, come here. Totally different approach. And this is what impacted me about that contrast between the first ghost and the second ghost, the past and the present. And I don't know that this is what Dickens was trying to do, but I think the difference in the two ghosts really helps us today when we're talking about joy. You can't bargain or reason with your past. You can't change your past. You can learn from it. You can figure out how to move on. You can adapt, but you can't change it. It will not reason with you. It's there. It happened. You have to accept it. But the present, I think, is really up to you. I think whether you want to be joyful or miserable now, Is up to you. Scrooge had to seek out that ghost. The ghost of Christmas present, he had to get out of bed, he had to go to the door, he had to approach the light, he had to come into the feast, he had to find the ghost. It was all there for him, it was all there waiting to be known, but he had to move toward it. Salvation, these big words in the Bible, these big concepts of Christianity, salvation, God's forgiveness, righteousness, these things belong to God, you know? They belong to God, and whether you want them or not, he blesses them to you. But joy is up to you. Will you seek it out? God says, you're saved. You're my daughter. You're my son. You're my heir. I am keeping your inheritance in heaven with me, and it will never spoil, perish, or fade. But joy is up to you. I think if I want to be miserable right now, and I can say this from experience, God will let me be miserable. I have to decide whether or not to pursue joy. And Jesus, in his great sermon on the mount, said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The curse that the Bible talks about, the curse, the curse that this creation is under, the physical material universe, the curse that the human race is under, is all of life's frustration. The curse is life's frustration and all the futility of what we have and what we do. The curse comes from hoping in ourselves. The curse comes from making the promise of the human spirit our all in all, the thing we pursue the most. So how could Isaac Watts in 1719, right, who lived in the same cursed world we live in, who didn't have the internet, who wasn't an American, who didn't have social media or Netflix or Disney Plus, how could he sing about joy? Because he knew Jesus was coming back. Jesus is coming back, and that's why he sung about joy. Jesus is coming back, and it's why we celebrate Advent, which means coming. And so in Psalm 98, we hear in two different places, make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That is not about the Savior's birth. You notice that? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. That's not about the birth of Jesus. It's about Jesus coming back. And so he sang Isaac Isaac Watts. He paraphrased Psalm 98 with words like, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Or verse 2, joy to the world. The Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness. Are they they proving the glory of his righteousness right now? Not at all, but they will. They will. And makes the nations prove the wonders of his love. And let's not forget this phrase. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There is in a dark corner of the globe of the human condition, of the history we remember, and of your own personal life. There's not a dark corner or cobweb that Jesus will not come into, bring the light, and bring the feast when he returns. The Christmas message is one of pure hope, and the pure hope is what leads us into joy. Joy is impossible without a properly directed hope hope in the right person. One author, talking about this Christmas carol, wrote that at Christmas time, we need bifocal vision. I don't wear bifocals yet, but I kind of understand how they work, right? You kind of you can go back and forth, or maybe, right? They, and so this author says, at Christmas time, we need bifocal vision. This is what the culture doesn't have. Because when January 2nd comes and Bing Crosby stops singing, it's back to the winter, it's back to the baloney and everything we're trudging through. But the Christian has bifocal vision because we focus on a savior and we focus on a king. We focus, focus on a first coming and we focus on a return. Bifocal vision to see a savior who became human so that humanity could know him better. A savior who isn't tainted by the world, who isn't discouraged by what we see in the news, who isn't defeated by everything that gets us down. A savior who substituted himself on a Roman cross, whose death was the substitute for my punishment, for your punishment. A savior who loosens us from the curse so that it still exists in time and space but has no power over you. But a Savior, remember, bifocal vision, a Savior who is also a king, who will return and will rule with truth and grace, where the nations, where the world itself, the material world and human government and culture, finally, at last, when Jesus returns, will give witness to his truth, his grace, and the wonders of his love. Can you not see that hoping in the human spirit is the same thing as worshiping the tribal gods from thousands of years ago? Can you not see it's the same thing? Worshiping the human spirit, putting our hope in the human spirit is as unproductive, unrealistic, unwise, and frankly, respectfully, ridiculous as hoping in the ancient tribal gods, Embrace the message of Christmas, the spirit of Christmas, the spirit of him who came and is returning. As we sing, let every heart prepare him room. That's embracing the Christ child and waiting for the Christ to return as king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let Jesus redirect your hope toward him and his joy will be yours. You know, we're told in the book of Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When everybody was sad and the ancient Israelites were feeling terrible, Nehemiah said to them, do not be discouraged today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So joy to the world. And I really mean that. Joy to the world and joy to you. I really mean that. Joy to you. Take it as a blessing. Receive it. Not many people want you to have joy. Take it from whoever wants to give it to you. Joy to you. Joy to us. Joy to our families. Joy to our relatives. Joy to our neighbors. Joy to the community. Joy to this county. Joy to our adversaries. Joy to our enemies. Because Jesus is returning. Desire his joy. Run to the light of it. Feast on the joy of Jesus Christ. And know him better. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we confess that many times we lie in bed waiting for something to happen. I ask that your Holy Spirit would move us toward the light, would move us to feast on the abundant joy that knowing Jesus can bring us. May we hope in Him alone. Amen.